What's going on, everyone? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sit down with Opal Tometi. She's a human rights activist, writer, strategist, community organizer, and co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Starting out as a hashtag on social media in 2013, Black Lives Matter has grown to become the largest movement in U.S. history as reported by the New York Times. We had the unique pleasure of speaking with Opal and learning about her personal background and upbringing, what inspired her to become a human rights activist, how Black Lives Matter ultimately came together, what the organization's goal and purpose is, and much more. We received an overwhelming amount of questions from our audience for Opal, and we definitely tried our best to ask her what most of you were curious to know. So thank you so much for sending us your questions, and we hope you enjoy. Here we go. I am the daughter of immigrants. Um, I'm a first-generation Nigerian-American, born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, um, you know, in the 80s, 80s, 90s, and, and on. Um, and I, you know, grew up essentially in the suburbs of, of Phoenix and got my fair share of, you know, life, the ups and the downs growing up in that context, um, my folks are incredible. I had a really beautiful, tight-knit Nigerian-American community um, that was really rooted in our Christian faith. And um, I was a pretty, like, joyful, passionate, curious kid. Um, I remember, gosh, looking at high school and um, being involved in clubs, you know, quite early that looked at equality and diversity. Um, I was actually the only Black student to be part of a diversity initiative um, at the at the district-wide level. I was <laughs> the only Black person in those rooms, even with administrators and teachers and so on. And so quite early, I realized that there was, you know, something uh, not quite right um, that was happening in our communities. And I felt the pressures around issues of, of race and gender um, and even immigration status, you know, somewhat early. And I was, I was really attuned to that. My best friends growing up were from Jordan, from Sri Lanka, uh, Puerto Rico, Germany. So I had a really diverse set of friends and those were the people I truly came of age with. And then I had another set of friends um, when I'd go home on the weekends that were Nigerian American. And so I always kind of was living in these spaces and interacting with people who were really diverse in addition to the larger, um, largely, you know, white and even Latino, Latinx communities um, in Arizona. And I just had a really unique, I think, experience and upbringing mm -hmm. that helped me understand the world being uh, way more diverse um, and really beautiful. And from that experience, I think I began to examine some of the hardships that my friends were being faced with, some of the questions that were being faced with. And I, too, um, having so much love and, and just passion for my people, uh, became more and more concerned over the years. And like I said, got involved in high school. And then, you know, towards my junior, senior year in high school, started working um, with people who were unhoused. So like homeless folks in downtown Phoenix and working at soup kitchens and organizing my church youth group to go and 
um, serve over the weekends. And that was just kind of like our, our bonding activity. And um, I was just always doing those types of things um, from kind of an early, an early age. And my folks also were very much so committed to their community and and supporting other families um, through hard times. So I saw that example and and saw different things all around from from early age. And, you know, so Pat and I are both, you know, our parents are of Armenian descent. We're Armenians as well. So we were born here just like you uh, in Los Angeles, but we also were part of these diverse communities and we kind of saw the world and had a different perspective. So I can't say that I understand where you're coming from, but I kind of understand your, I, I understand your perspective, right? And I understand what it was like to kind of grow up with immigrant parents and to speak a different language and to, you know, have like a beard at like fourth grade, you know, like I'm 10 years old, like growing hair. Right. Um, and of course those are not massive problems and like, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just different. Right. And when you're a kid, it's, it's kind of weird. Cause you're like, ah, you know, everybody's like a little different than each other. But as you grow older and like, I see it more now, you become like much more in tune with your identity. Right. People that I know want to like go back and be like, they're doing 23 and me. Right. They're like, what's my identity? Where do my people come from? And I think that that's really a generational thing, something that's going to happen more and more. And I, I love that. Uh, but, you know, I'm curious, you know, you touched upon it a little bit, but as a kid or even like in high school, college growing up, how in tune were you with the environment around you and what it was like to be black, to be different than everybody else? I mean, I don't know what it's like in Arizona. Now it's a little bit different in terms of demographics. Um, but what was that like? Yeah, you know what? Growing up in Arizona um, as a as a young black girl, um, I you know at first I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is cool. I'm who I am, and I had a rather resilient community, being that I did have you know my my Nigerian community to kind of come back home to and and process certain things with, and and folks who were just extremely proud. I don't know if you all know the Nigerians, but they are a proud people. <laughs> and we love yeah. our culture. We love our food. We love our way of life. And so um, I always had that kind of in the, in the background and even like to undergird me, but I was yeah. faced with hardship. I remember being, you know, walking down the street to Safeway, to Walgreens and being called the N word. Um, I remember friends who um, were, had their parents, you know, deported, um, for really insignificant um, issues. And I remember my father being racially profiled time and time again to the point that he had to get rid of his car. He was he was driving a Mercedes at the time that was kind of, it wasn't even like a, a great, beautiful Mercedes, but it, he'd put it together. He knew some folks and they, you know, fixed up the car. And so he had that car, but he kept getting racially profiled. And so it became so scary for him as a, you know, as a black man to be, you know, quote unquote, being pulled over for driving while black after I think about the 10th time, 11th time, he was just like, I can't drive this car anymore. This is, this is quite literally um, terrifying every single time. And I think the last time he was pulled over by eight different police cars and he was, he was scared for his life. And of course, for, for what, it would mean if something were to happen to him and he would leave behind three children um, and his wife. So 
you know, so the, so growing up, I, I was very familiar with the fact that I was being looked at as though my skin was a crime or was offensive or, you know, things like that. However, I also had this beautiful community and even, you know, Black American friends and African-American um, friends and, and African immigrants and Caribbean and, and different folks who really showed me that, yeah, you know, there's, there's clearly nothing wrong with us um, mm-hmm. and that we should be proud. We should hold our head up high um, and we should persist despite the type of discrimination that we were faced with, not just the name calling, but the, the real outright discrimination and threats to our very you know, existence and our families. Mm-hmm. I saw, I think I read somewhere that you studied like history for your um, undergraduate studies. So tell us like how that was for you, why you decided to do that and what your sort of takeaway was from college. Yeah. So I did study history. I had my BA in history from the University of Arizona. I love Tucson, love the Wildcats. And um, I went into college as, you know, a, a kind of person who really wanted to have the genuine experience. And learn what I wanted to learn. And so when I first arrived at the University of Arizona, I originally planned on studying law. I thought that law was the, or going to law school was the only real way you can enact change. Um, and so I was always doing pre-law, going to all the um, the events for law school students. I In high school, I was also um, part of mock trial and I would compete and, and do these arguments. Um, and by the time I got to campus and began to even examine what was happening at the time um, around the world and even the dynamics on our campus, it, it became very clear to me that I needed to have a better understanding of what had happened before I arrived. And I went in and essentially chose to study history as a practical matter. I wanted to know why we were the way we are as a society. Um, and I you know, graduated early to be, not to even toot my own horn, but like I graduated in three years and I graduated in three years because I was very disturbed <laughs> by what I was learning. I was essentially learning that we keep repeating history um, time and time again and, and not really learning the lessons that we should be learning. And right. I was learning about history from Europe to the Americas to the US and beyond. And it just became clear to me that there were certain themes um, that kept coming back up around race and class and gender um, that seemed to be persistent. And I you know, just said, okay, enough of, enough is enough. I want to get out into the real world, the quote unquote real world, and um, start doing the work. Um, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to get real experience. And so as a student at the University of Arizona, I was involved with a few um, clubs on campus, but I fairly quickly got involved in community-based organizations in Tucson. Um, at the time that I was a student in the early 2000s, there was a humanitarian crisis on the border, and there still continues to be, where you know people are forced to leave their homes in many ways and are um, traversing and, and trying to make a living, and so they're crossing, you know, making these miles and miles trekking through the desert. You know, people are dying in the desert. People are becoming, um, they're you know they're malnourished. They come over with blisters on their feet. 
people are, are really suffering. And so that was happening at the border. And at the same time, there were vigilantes who had come to the border at that time um, with guns. And they were trying to apprehend um, these really, to, you know, to me, like these courageous migrants who were trying to do their best to, in a system that was really not working for them, both in their you know, native countries and then on the route. And it, it felt really, um, it felt like there was just this inverted value system that was operational and that folks that were trying to cross were really the victims of this economy that wasn't working for anybody. And I saw with my own eyes what was happening. I saw that we would even leave bottles of water in the desert for people because we don't want them to die. Like I think any sane, compassionate <laughs> human being of conscience, you know, would see that, you know, people are quite literally dying. Um, so let's leave some bottles of water. But what we would find is, you know, ranchers, some would slash the bottles of water, or contaminate troughs that were usually used for cows. Um, uh, Border Patrol would slash and empty out bottles of water. And we, we and myself, I was just, I was deeply disturbed by all that I, that I saw. And, um, and really felt like my education wasn't doing what I needed it to do um, outside of, you know, I wanted to change something right now. And what was clear to me was that there have been very serious and egregious events throughout history. And I could see the signs of how that was going to play out once again. Um, and I see the plan signs playing out right now. And for me, doing the work was essentially let me go um, be out in the real world, be able to give my time and devote my energy into change. Um, yes, academia, like being in school was good and having that education, having that background, but I wanted to get involved. And then the other thing is I was, um, I was interning all three years at the University of Arizona and volunteering at a domestic violence shelter um, and so that, too, was a very formative experience for me, just seeing how so many women and children were being um, abused in their homes and just uh, the the abysmal kind of resources and support that they could truly get to escape and find safety um, and find stability. Um, and so to me, that was also extremely important. And so my first job out of college was working at a domestic violence shelter in Arizona, um, working the night shift and working with women, um, hosting these um, women's groups where we would learn more about what's going on, learn more about what they could do to change their circumstances um, and just, you know, just really be a space that they could rest somebody the rest of their shoulder on somebody's or sorry rest their head on somebody's shoulder and um connect with one another other women who've been through similar uh challenges and get a little bit of support in that way and so that was what you know that was what the work looked like for me you know early on i, right, right. I got involved right away it might be jumping around a little bit and feel free to just kind of come back and allude to it but you know you're still such a young person who's doing such great things right and it's almost like you've lived like decades in these like three decades that you've been alive right you know and for those that you know don't see you it's like you're agreeing with me with your eyes um but you know the black lives matter movement right you know what really is so relevant today 
Uh, I mean, so relevant even right now, you know, as we're doing this interview. Um, and it's, I mean, if you haven't heard of it, you're probably like not living, right? You're probably not, there's no heartbeat. Um, and then we have other issues. But it started in 2013, right? It's been seven years now. Um, talk to us about, you know, what it was. How did it come to be? Why did it come to be? Who was involved, right? Give us a little bit of an overview and then we'll delve a little deeper into the movement itself and just everything that's come with it. Yeah, so back in 2013, if folks remember, uh, President Barack Obama was the one who was in office and there was a lot of activity, a lot of various challenges going on in our world. Um, And in particular, what we saw happening in that time was that Black people who were unarmed and you know, minding their business and you know living their lives um, were still being targeted uh, by vigilantes, by police, by law, um, by uh, security guards, and so on, um, quite violently, quite routinely. And despite having a black president, uh, we were still being faced with these types of egregious um, acts of violence and and just disrespect. Um, And in 2013, folks might remember that George Zimmerman, the man who stalked and killed a 17-year-old boy named Trayvon Martin, who was doing nothing but walking in his own neighborhood with a can of Arizona iced tea and a bag of Siddles was stalked and killed by George Zimmerman. And it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart when I heard the story, when, um, when I saw that his case was unfolding, not, it wasn't even Trayvon's case, but it felt like it was Trayvon's case, but it was George George Zimmerman's case for the murder that we all knew that he did but it unfolded in way in the courthouse as though Trayvon was on trial for his own murder. And it was deeply disturbing. Um, it was deeply disturbing on a personal level because I have two younger brothers, one of whom was 14 years old at the time. And so it was very clear to me that there was no escaping this story. He was going to hear it. Um, and other people that I love were going to hear it and, and think that this was... Um, something that could potentially happen to them. And it was clear to me that it's a very real threat and concern for a lot of Black people and Black families. And watching this case unfold, finding out that George Zimmerman was being acquitted for the murder. And mind you, I found out he was acquitted for the murder right after I watched a film called Fruitvale Station. Um, And for those of you who may not remember, but it it was a story about Oscar Grant, a young man who was killed by Oakland Police Department on New Year's Day. Um, this film, Michael B. Jordan was the was a lead character. Was, and it was a, a story that broke me in the theaters. And then quite literally out after I watched the film, I walked outside, I Angelica under the streetlight, standing there with one of my good girlfriends, Kira, who was also another Black community organizer, I looked at my phone, got the tweets, got the text saying that, you know, this is the way that this thing went down. I was broken. I was utterly shattered. And I essentially went home that evening, 
bawled my eyes out. I don't think I ever cried that hard. I wasn't expecting to be so um, impacted by this, especially because we do know that this happens so often. But there was something about the age of Trayvon, the age of my youngest brother, just watching Fruitvale Station, so much of it just swirled within me in terms of my feelings um, that I knew I had to do something else. I had to do something more. And I was already the executive director for an organization called the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which is the country's first immigrant rights organization for Black people. So working with African immigrants, Caribbean, Afro-Latinos, as well as African-Americans, really understanding that immigrant rights is, is part of a larger racial justice struggle. Um, and I was already doing that work. I was already d- working across the country, but I knew something more needed to be done in this moment. And I knew that other people were reeling with this news that George Zimmerman was acquitted. And I went to social media, like so many of us, and saw a Facebook post by one of my co-founding sisters, Alicia Garza, um, who I'd met just you know a couple of years before. And in her post, she essentially kind of shared a bit of a love note to Black people. And it said something like, you know, Black people, I love us. You know, our lives matter. And then Patrice, who I actually didn't know at the time, um, put a hashtag on this Facebook post in the thread. And other people commented and all of that. And I remember seeing it and being so deeply moved by it. And having already been working for a Black organization across the country, there was something about the simplicity of this message, um, the simplicity of the call to Black people directly, but also the external message, which can be read as a demand to ensure that Black Lives Matter. Um, Both felt so present in that statement that I you know, the next day woke up and and called Alicia and said, Hey, I saw this thing online. Like, what, you know, what's the plan? Like, can we do something? And she was like, yes, I'm already, you know, I've started talking with Patrice. We want to do something too. Like, let's, let's do something. I said, I have a bad, at that time, I didn't talk about this, but I have my master's in communication studies. I was, I'd done some PR work for immigrant rights organizations and different groups. So it's like, I know how to make a basic website. <laughs> I can do that. I'll make a basic website. Um, I'll connect it to Tumblr so it's shareable. I'll also start Facebook. I'll start a Twitter. And we'll start to amplify this message. And we'll invite others to, to, to use this hashtag as well. And so, you know, chose the colors, yellow and black. Yellow being my favorite color. Um, black, because, of course, we're black. <laughs> it's obvious. And it's just like a... The branding's powerful. Um, and the By the way, scheme. our founder, our colors are also black and yellow. That's right. I did see that. And I was like, look at that. They're also something as well. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm curious, you know, in the very beginning, you know, we've obviously seen the growth of black, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and from that one hashtag to where it is now. And it's, it's. I mean, you see, you're seeing it on basketball courts. You're seeing it on streets here in Hollywood. You're seeing, I mean, in, on Twitter and all, all over social media. But I'm curious, when you and Patrice and Alicia got together and, and started this, what was the original kind of vision for where this would go? What was the goal? What was, what were you working towards? Is there like a specific, you know, do you have a specific yeah. goal in mind? Yeah. The, the specific goal was to remind people of the civil rights movement and that we can get involved in community organizing. 
You know, when I built the website, I specifically reached out to a bunch of other community organizers across the country that we knew from Miami to Syracuse to, you know, Oakland to, to all across the country. And they said, hey, we're, we're launching this new platform. This is the hashtag we're using. Can I list your organization on this website? Can you contribute a blog piece that, and, and you know, essentially did a blog carnival. Can you contribute a blog piece that talks about the work that you're doing Um that's around racial justice, that really is around ensuring that Black Lives Matter. And can you contribute that to this platform so that we can collectively use our voices, amplify our own voices, coordinate in a way that reminds the public that we don't have to take this. (laughs) We don't have to sit idly by and that we have a moral obligation um, to stand up for justice. And and that's essentially what the mandate was from the beginning. Um, right. and, and, and in addition to that, I'll say, so that was explicit on the website, you know, adding people's uh, different organizations and inviting people and doing these calls to action. But I also explicitly um, listed people with, you know, diverse Black identities. You know, Black people are not a monolith. And so it was important to me to, ensure that everyone who came to the page who was Black would know that this was for them. So I quite literally listed, you know, disabled folks, trans folks, queer folks, immigrants, undocumented folks, just so people would know that we're talking about the breadth of, of, of Black people, because at the end of the day, whether, you know, you're an immigrant or not, you're still being targeted. People, you know, your skin is what folks see. And, you know, you're, you're being impacted by this anti-Black violence as well. And so it was important from the outset just for folks to, to know that it was about them. And like I said, the broader call was let's remind people of this tradition of resistance when we are faced with this level of, of violence and degradation. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm curious, you know, it sounds like a lot of the messaging in the beginning was focused on raising awareness and bringing people together around this common cause. And I'm sure it's gotten way bigger than you could have ever imagined, you know, bigger than you or even your co-founders. And it's become a big part of American politics and, you know, reform and legislation. And I'm curious, was that ever the goal, like for it to become what it is today? Or did it just naturally become that way? No, it was always the goal to have it be pervasive throughout our society and really around the globe. Um, specifically, so I mentioned, and I did this as a, a, in passing, that my background is in communication studies. Um, a lot of my research had to do with digital platforms, the use of social media for social movements, and so on. And so I knew the importance of getting online, sharing you know, digitally, and, and so on. And it was important for us to use social media because we wanted to be able to get this message into the hands of thousands, if not millions of people. So that was always the case. And the other case is that we knew that the issues weren't just about police brutality. We knew this was about, you know, our education system. This is about our healthcare system. Um, this is about jobs and high unemployment rates of, of Black people and about so many other issues, right? And and ultimately, we understood that structural racism is 
the crux of the problem. And if we don't address the root of the problem, we're going to continue to see these types of cases of brutality um, and just extrajudicial killings that we were seeing on camera um, and, and beyond. So it was always the case that we wanted it to be viral. We wanted it to be you know, pervasive. We wanted this message to um, reach every aspect of our society because as we're now seeing these issues around race and racism specifically are everywhere we go. <laughs> so if you're talking about health, you know, healthcare professionals, for example, and the ways in which they treat black people who come into the hospitals or how much medication that they're receiving or not receiving, um, the survival rate of, of mothers who are giving birth and, and, and that being impacted or how young black girls are being treated in, in high school and how they're being overly punished and being channeled into, um, detention and incarceration, same thing with young Black men. Um, and, and so for us, it was very important that people get more of an everyday understanding of what is happening uh, when it comes to anti-Black racism in our society. And it was just so critical that the even the phrase was broad enough that people can understand that this is about you too. <laughs> this is about the spaces that you occupy and you occupy. And we wanted people to understand that this is for them as well. They have a responsibility. This isn't just for a few people in one organization or one advocacy campaign. No, it's incumbent upon all of us in the society to stand up for justice, to stand up against anti-Black racism um, and to you know, turn the tide on this hate that we're seeing. Opal, a lot of times, you know, you know, we get this question about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a question that I've had. And, you know, luckily we're, you know, here today and we're, we're discussing and we have a lot more in common than you think. I actually did go to law school and I did do mock trial in high school and college. Uh, I wish I didn't. I did. I wish I didn't. I wish I took your path. You know, skip those three years. Um, but you know, a lot yeah, of times I'm, I'm in law, so glad you know, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are. I've many lawyers times, too at this time. So like, yeah, you know, we learn about problems, right? We learn about how you identify problems, how you then go on and solve problems, um, and you know how you identify things and issues, right? And the one you know question I have for you is, you know, you mentioned the goal, and it's a very high level goal of you know we want to bring awareness, but a lot of the times when we amongst our circles and amongst p other people and other founders and just generally people, you know, just through conversation on Twitter, on social media, you hear that, and this could be wrong, but that's why, you know, you're here to explain it, that we don't necessarily know what the goal is, right? Is the goal to end racism? Is the goal to get some level of legislation? Like, what is the tangible goal? Because the one thing that I've learned and we learned through entrepreneurship and business is unless there's a goal, it's very hard to get wherever because there's no destination right so we understand the you know awareness piece you know and that's a huge piece right i'm not trying to downplay that but beyond that what can we do right what can the folks that support black lives matter those perhaps that don't even support black lives matter what can be done to mm -hmm. actually achieve whatever said goal is well, I think this is an important question, and I'd, I'd love to make it a distinction because I would say, yeah, awareness is a pathway um, and, a, and a very important pathway, but to me, action is better, right? So awareness is good, but action is better. Like, 
that is, that action is what leads to our transformation. And quite honestly, what we believe and what I believe is that we are on a, a journey to transforming our society, uh, you know, ensuring that this society is just and treats Black people with the dignity and respect that they and we <laughs> deserve. Um, and that's ultimately the goal. And I know it, it, it might sound lofty or unlike anything else that folks might you know, be thinking about, like a business goal or one-off campaign goal or so on. But the, but the reality is the issue in the U.S. is so profound and so pervasive that we actually have to transform you know, our systems, our institutions, and, and so on. And so it's, there are multiple goals within that. Right. There are multiple ways that we need to see things change within that. And so, you know, it's, and I don't say, cause I'm, I'm trying to dodge. There's no dodging. No, no, no. I, I think the yeah. also, the other thing is that I, you know, I know that people are asking that question. And at the same time, I have a, I do have a problem with the question because it, to me, you know, you look around and you see black people being gunned down by police, and it's like, what do you think we're trying to do? We're trying to stop it. <laughs> like, we're trying, like, there's, no, there's, right. like, what's the only? But the only that's that is the objective. That is, right. you know, that's the goal. And of course, we should have goals that are beyond that, that are more aspirational. And so, mm-hmm. we do have goals like we want black people to be able to thrive. <laughs> it's beyond just surviving. Right. And 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 you know, I'm so grateful that Jacob Blake survived. I thank God that he survived, but he's, you know, he's potentially paralyzed now. His kids are traumatized. The world is traumatized after seeing this. Um, and, and the world is, you know, up and upset as a result. And so I think, you know, to me, it's like, that is a question for sure, but I, I don't know that, uh, that's the that's the ultimate question because I think the the right response for those who are concerned is just to get involved, you know, just to like follow your <laughs> follow your heart, follow your gut. It's not rocket science. Let's work with people in our community. Let's call our elected officials. Let's get involved and ensure that Black people don't continue to be killed in the streets day in and day out. You know, folks are tired. Um, and sad and depressed and just ultimately fed up that this is going on in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. It's just, um, it the, the entire thing is just an affront to humanity at this point. Right. You know, when you really think about it, why should a movement like Black Lives Matter have an opposition? You know, it's, it's a matter of human rights, but the reality is that there is an opposition. And just to sort of understand why, it seems like a lot of it is because it starts getting into things that are very political, like like defunding the police, for example. Um, for an issue like that, how can we as a society do a better job of screening for racism as a preventative measure before it you know becomes too late and someone ends up dying? Um, for example, if there's a police officer and they're actually racist and racially profiling and has the, they, they have the intention of murdering an innocent person and it comes down to a split second decision, how would we be able to truly prevent that from happening again? You know, I think this is, this is the question, right? Um, the thing that is true is that we didn't get here overnight, and from my studies, you all know I'm a history, <laughs> my, my history background, um, my research 
has found, and the research of many others has found, that back in the 80s, um, actually under Reagan, there was essentially this, this gutting of the public safety net. You know, then we have, you know, Bush Sr., um, we have additional kind of gutting of the public safety net. And, and mind you, the, 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 the safety net is really there to ensure that people who have been, you know, disenfranchised for generations have some modicum of support and stability in the, in, in the case of crisis. Um, it's also for other communities who are falling on hardship to have some support. But we see these attacks on the system. And then we have, you know, Clinton, Bill Clinton, who sets up these laws and signs into signs into law, um, things like the three strikes law, or really increases the presence of police in our communities, um, and essentially criminalizes being poor. And what we see is that law enforcement begins to come into low-income communities, which in this country, low-income communities are largely communities of color. Um, and they have, they have the license to, to be there because we see this increased criminalization of quote unquote petty crimes. And so we see more and more interactions with law enforcement and sue with communities of color because we're now having our neighborhoods hyper-policed. Um, and we see more and more money being pushed to these police budgets to increase their presence in our communities. And then we see this explosion of mass incarceration and you see more black people being incarcerated, more you know, brown folks being incarcerated. And so although black people are only 13% of the population, they make up 40% of the population of those who are incarcerated. And those numbers, I think anybody understands those numbers don't add up. It doesn't make any sense. Um, we're not quit committing more crime or doing more drugs than the rest of the population, and so it doesn't it doesn't quite add up. And what what is also true is that these budgets are overfunded, and we're also living in a society that is it is rooted in in racism, the legacy of of enslavement, uh, the Reconstruction, Jim Crow all of these challenges over the years and throughout history and up into present day, um, the civil rights movement, you, you know the stories and you, got, you come up into this point. We've always been dealing with some form of racism um, in different aspects of our society. And so you couple racist values, period, in our, and racist ideologies in our society, period. Uh, black skin is, is crime. Black folks you know, are lazy. Black, you know, all of these stereotypes about black people you couple those with people having the authorization to carry and use a lethal weapon like the police using guns. And of course, what you're going to get is the levels of killings of unarmed Black people that we have. It's it's just what is going to happen. There's no real way around it. You have these, these values that are operationalized and happening in a matter of, of seconds. You know, I remember reading a study by UCLA where they conducted a series of studies on implicit bias, which is, uh, you know, uh, unconscious dehumanization. And they essentially found that these biases are, are happening in less than a second. And so these police officers and, and people in every sector are making decisions so quickly, but, they, but in the case of law enforcement, 
they have guns. And so they're, you know, they and they're taught to shoot to kill. There's that's what the mandate is. And so we see what we're seeing now. It's a natural outcome. And so ultimately what we're saying is if you continue to see that this thing is not working um, and wasn't designed to work in favor of keeping black people safe, it was never designed that way. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, police were, were evolved from what is known as slave patrols. So quite literally tracking down runaway quote unquote slaves. And so this is, the, these are the origins. So this is the evolution over time. What we have now is, Lethal weapons, black people who are are being treated as though their skin is a crime, and it's happening like that. Um, and so, yes, we want to see you know police being prosecuted, and I think there's a lot of calls for arresting police and things like that. But ultimately, I think the the real goal is to ensure that no people, no black families, have to experience this type of pain um, and loss ever again. That is, when I think about that, that is my ultimate goal. I heard and saw what happened with Trayvon Martin, you know, heard and saw what happened with Oscar Grant, Amadou Diallo, Ayanna Stanley Jones, Tamir Rice, so many people. I, I saw that, and specifically with Trayvon Martin, I, I made it my, he's such like my life's mission. I do not want to see any Black family suffering like this ever again. And sadly, we know it's happened hundreds of times since then. And I I ultimately believe that we as a society and really as any, you know, everyday kind of citizen or consumer, if you know something is ultimately not functioning, you don't use it anymore. <laughs> You'd retire it or you fundamentally change it. And in this case, what we're saying is you don't continue to incentivize or reward um a system or or an institution that's not working, you think critically about it and you examine it and you examine what could work. And what I've been saying in the work that I've done, um, even, gosh, even six, seven years back when I first started BLM was, let's redefine safety. What does safety really look like for our communities? Because I think ultimately people are thinking, oh, the police keep us safe. But what we're finding is like, no, the police don't keep us safe. But what keeps us safe is our own communities, our families being intact, um, our ability to have good employment, um, having safe and, and great education for our children, having access to health care and good food and, you know, being able to live with dignity. That's what keeps people safe. People are fine and good. And, and you know, I, I saw a really great image the other day, a really great poster the other day that essentially said, the safest communities are the communities that have the most resources. And I think ultimately that's what we're talking about now. We're saying let's ensure that all of our communities have the same resources and opportunities that they need to be safe and to live a life of dignity and have the ability to thrive. Opal, you know, I have a question that my barber is going to kill me if I don't ask because he's a big fan of the show and every time I go to him, he's become a great friend at this point. I've been going to him for like seven years, even though I'm losing hair. So, you know, you know, just I just I at like this point, it. I just go to hang out with him. Uh, and, you know, we talk all the time about different issues. He's in education. He's also, you know, he cuts hair on the side and 
He's always discussing, and he's black, and he's always talking about different issues that come up, political, social, academic, right? And, you know, there's no doubt that the work BLM is doing is fantastic. I mean, as Armenians, as people that have always pushed for social justice, right? I've given several speeches in law school at USC, and I've always said, you know, Armenians, we're a small group of people, right? We can't, and we talk about something that happened 105 years ago. We can't do it alone, right? We need blacks, we need Indians, Mexicans, everybody to join our cause, right? Nobody gives a shit about us. I mean, like, that's kind of the canvas that I operate on. So I need everybody to unite with me, right? And so every time I go to my barber, to other places, my friends who are not Armenian, I always bring it up, right? But at the end of the day, everybody has questions. They have criticisms. They're like, why do you still care about this? Why is this important? And I was talking to him, and he told me, you know, I would love for you to ask... Opal, or Opal, excuse me, you know, with all the good work that's happening, a lot of community members that apparently he sees ask, well, okay, there's so many of these questions. Who's funding BLM? You know, are these, is this a Marxist organization? What's their end goal, right? Like, these are the questions that we're literally reading off of this notes right now. And, you know, he was curious, like, I 100% support it, but I want these questions answered, Right. Perhaps you can answer those questions or perhaps we can start figuring out how we educate others on, you know, what it is that they should be focusing on. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think fo- people should be focusing on the work. <laughs> they should be focusing on what the what the task is at hand. And we need all hands to the plow. We need all hands on deck to transform our society and make sure that we are all safe and able to be home with our families. Um, so that to me is like what the focus should be. However, I know that, yeah, people ask about resources and this and that, you know, we're funded by, I I even haven't even received a a paycheck from BLM in my entire (laughs) seven years since it's existed, but that's not the point. That's not the question. The reality is there are thousands of donors, thousands of people who who believe this message, who believe in what we're doing, who, be- and, and understand that, you know, I say we, but it's like the royal we, y'all included people of conscience, um, who are part of a, a larger multiracial movement for Black lives. And this means that there are quite literally people from across the country, from every sector of work, um, every religion, who see what we're up to and they're like, yes, we see that there are, are, are Black people who are being killed in the streets and we're sick and tired of it. And we and this status quo of, of Black death is intolerable and we, we want to support you all. And so they give. And so they give. And so that's great. And not only do they give, a lot of them are actively engaged and involved in the work themselves. They know that it's not just about you know, sending your money or sending a tweet, that it's about committing to showing up and, and acting like Black Lives Matter wherever you are. So if you're around the dinner table and you know your uncle starts talking trash, you speak up, you let him know. If you are at your corporate job and you see that there's discrimination happening in the workplace or that people keep getting Passover for job promotions and so on, you speak up, you be a real ally, and that means you're engaged in the work. You're you're anti-racist, not just oh, I don't. At least I didn't say that. At least I didn't say that. No, it's about taking a clear stance. In this time, it's 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 so critical that people understand that there is no neutral. 
there's no being neutral in times like this when you see that people are being killed even in the middle of a pandemic like this. Um, you're either on the side of justice or you're against it. You know, there's there's no other real way around it. And neutral is actually being complicit with the injustice. Um, and so we've essentially said, we're inviting folks to join. It's a, it's a big tent. <laughs> there are a lot of ways to get involved. There's a lot of work to do. This is a human rights movement. I've, you know, I've spoken before the United Nations on multiple occasions. I've, you know, traveled the world, talking with partners, you know, from Europe. And we went, you know, we got the Sydney Peace Prize. We've, we've done, you know, so much around the world and have, have got all sorts of, you know, critical claim from all kinds of leaders and human rights leaders and, you know, folks like Desmond Tutu I met and, you know, just folks who've shown us a lot of love and who remind us, you know, John Lewis included, you know, the late John Lewis, um, who just said, don't, don't stop. <laughs> you know, he quite, he quite literally said that there is no turning back and that you are on the right side of history and you have a moral obligation and a duty to keep on persisting until um, justice is accomplished in this country. And, you know, the tough part is, and this is something that one of my professors, uh, you know, we, we were taking a civil litigation class and he said, you know, when you look at things like the civil rights movement, he's like, the reason why, you know, sometimes people don't understand why we do it is because they don't see the results automatically, right? You don't, you know, when you, I don't know, when you study for an exam, you get a grade, you see the results. But when you're fighting for justice, right, whether we're Armenian, whether you're black, whether you're Rwandan, whether you're anything in between LGBTQ, you, there's not an automatic result, right? And that's uncomfortable. That's out of the norm. How does one embrace that discomfort? How does one embrace the unknown and just keep going? Because it's like a battle that never ends, right? It seems like we don't know what victory looks like. So, I mean, I don't know. Give us your insight on that because I personally am curious about that. Yeah. You know, I actually look to examples like a John Lewis who quite literally dedicated his entire life to this question and to this pursuit um, and didn't waver. And I have other elders and mentors in my life who are, you know, all across the globe who've shown me that, you know, this is a lifelong commitment. And while it shouldn't be, because you know, I sometimes joke that I would love to have been an interior designer. <laughs> I, I love interiors. Um, but here I am, you know, I, 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 I am unsettled and deeply disturbed by the fact that one of my family members or myself might be attacked and killed one day. I'm, I'm deeply disturbed that I might be discriminated out of a job. I'm deeply you know, disturbed that my children might not, um, you know, might be treated poorly on a playground or at their schools when I'm not there, or, or my sister might not get the attention she needs in the hospital. So I'm, I'm, I'm so concerned about those things that I can't, you know, shake, you know, the call to, to justice. And I, honestly look at these issues knowing that they're bigger than any one of us. Um, and at the same time, as I look out, I see people whose hearts and minds are changing. Um, I see people who are standing up, you know, for justice and who are, you know, going to rallies, going to protests, making phone calls, um, getting involved in the movement, giving you know, people who don't even have much money who are donating um, to the movement and donating to different organizations across the country. And so I see that 
they too are, are, are so moved and so impacted. And so I, I stay encouraged because I see that there's a growing community. There's a groundwell of support. And, you know, ultimately I'm like, I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> like, I'm not crazy. I have all these, you know, these friends and these mentors who remind me that, no, we're on the right side of history. We're doing the right thing. Um, and yes, the challenges are, are big, but we do see some gains. We have seen some uh, budgets being slashed. We have seen laws change. We have voted in people who, who not only look like us, because I don't think it's just that, but I think it's people who have values um, that mean that we're all treated with dignity. <laughs> we're all treated respect. Um, and so we have seen those types of gains over the years. Um, and I think we're also seeing those, those gains in the cultural space. We're seeing art that looks more like us. We're seeing Hollywood um, even take up these questions and look at the types of images they're putting out there, the types of uh, roles that people are being asked to play, the types of narratives that are being shared. And so these things are changing and shifting. And, and, and also folks are understanding that this is about real investment in, in Black communities. They're understanding that over the years, over generations, Black communities have been left out of the formal economy in many ways. They've been forced and, and tracked in a way where they can be devalued and can be sent off to prison and essentially warehoused there. Um, and so folks know that now that this is the time that we have to invest in Black communities, invest in Black businesses, invest in, you know, Black organizations and institutions so that we can rectify and, and course correct um, for the years of, of negligence and uh, willful abuse. Um, and so I think that's, I think that to me is really important. So I, I like to look at the some, sometimes small, small wins and medium-sized wins. And that to me gives me, you know, it gives me hope. And then, you know, lastly, I'll just say that the other thing that gives me hope are the young people in my life. I have some incredible friends with gorgeous children and they send me the cutest videos and those things keep me hopeful. You know, my one of my good girlfriends from college, she's Chinese, her daughters are Chinese. She sends me these videos where they're talking about race and racism and they're like, you know, we want to support Opal or my other good girlfriend in Hawaii and she's sending me a picture of or a video of her son who's three years old and he's chanting Black Lives Matter and he's learning from a young age that no, I'm not just going to be neutral or not think that I need to talk about race and I'm, you know, behave like I'm colorblind, but no, I'm going to acknowledge race and actually I'm going to stand up and use my voice to support Black lives. And so and we see that the young people are, are getting this message and it's, it's not even a divisive message. It's a very um, powerful, loving, beautiful message that is rooted in human rights and dignity and everybody should be on board. And I am really heartened when I see like just the diversity of folks who have joined and it's, it's beautiful. Um, and then I guess the real, the real last thing I'll say that I think that is important for folks to know, and I don't know if you all know this, but you know, New York times uh, declared and named black lives matter as the largest human rights movement in human history, uh, mm-hmm. which is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it's humbling. It's really a testament to people of courage and conscience standing up 
And for them heeding the call, it's not any, I, I couldn't have magically done anything. There's no special hashtag that actually elicits that kind of response. That's people in their own hearts seeing what's right and what's wrong and knowing that they want to be on the right side of history. And so that's important. It's powerful. But the other thing is that we are also the entity that has the most disinformation against us in human history as well. So while we have the distinction of being the largest movement in history, we also have the distinction of having the entity that has the most disinformation um, campaigns against us in history too, compared to any other company or other kind of entity, we have that as well. And so, you know, I, I understand why there are so many questions, but it's largely because we have such an attack on us. Um, and that I think also says something, right? You're not doing yeah. anything of significance if you don't have those kinds of attacks. That's what they say. Yeah, no, but, and, on, and on that note, and I know, I know you got to run and um, th- we'll just kind of sort of close with this on that note, you know, there, there, how do you sort of address these things? You know, currently, is there like a voice, one person, or is it you and your co-founders? Like, is there someone that addresses all these sort of attacks and these different kind of angles that people are coming in and, you know, accusing you of this or that? Like, how can, because I do agree with you. I think that this thing should not be divisive. This thing, we should be unifying over, you know, Black Lives Matter, and we should be unifying over just human rights. You know, it's not something that should have, you know, it's not, just like it shouldn't have like that an opposition like it does have today. So I'm curious, like how do you how do you sort of address these things and make sure that we're all on same on the same page when these things come up? Yeah, unfortunately, there's no there's no several bullet that we found to addressing the level of disinformation that there is, and the reality is that we are you know an entity and a series of of organizations. Um, that are part of a larger movement and coalitions around the country. Um, but we aren't as well-funded and well-fueled as some of these bots and these um, factories, essentially, that are quite literally writing fake stories and distributing and disseminating fake news about us online and in real, you know, traditional press every single day. We just don't have the resources to to deal with that. And so we are in, in many ways facing an uphill battle, although we have the most support. We, we're still kind of facing uh, you know, this uphill battle of, of filtering through um, all of this disinformation that's out there. And I, you know, I feel for people who genuinely have questions, but I honestly also just encourage folks, you know, you can go to blacklivesmatter.com. It doesn't have every, every, every little thing that's going on there, or every like response to every fake piece of information or news, but it has a lot. And I encourage people just to go there for, for the basics. We have pretty much statements on most things of significance are on there. Um, and we've, um, been interviewed by the AP News or New York Times and different outlets. And so most um, questions of, of real significance and substance have been answered already. And so we, I just encourage folks to go to the, go to the source, <laughs> go to the source. Uh, don't go to third party sources for your, for your news. It's just not, it's not reliable. And, you know, quite honestly, when you see what's happening in the world, I think the answer should be clear as day at this point. 
Well, Opal, you know, thank you so much. I know we have gone beyond what we were scheduled to do, but we really appreciate you taking the time and really, I mean, your passion, obviously, about this uh, movement and about this just reality that we're all living in is extremely apparent. And hopefully those that are listening, they don't only listen, but they go and do their own research. They go and educate themselves because at the end of the day, that's really what matters. All these things that happen, everything people believe in has to come from within, right? And it's good. I think it's okay to ask questions. I think it's okay to question authority. I think it's okay to be uncomfortable. I think you just have to go and find the answers for yourself. And, you know, eventually I think people will get it. And I think that, you know, Martin Luther King said it best, right? The time is always right to do what's right. And I think that eventually people will understand that they're going to be on the right side of history. As we see, like the younger generation, you know, I look like I'm 45, I'm 28, but, you know, our generation of people, our generation of kids and young adults, they're going to see this. They're going to be a part of it, right? We're exposed to what this is. It's hard. I always talk to my parents and others' parents. It's hard to change the minds of people that are 50, 60, 70 years old. I'm not saying it's impossible. They understand it. But for us, I think for me and Pat, I think my focus is make sure that those that come after me, my kids, my fellow follow generations, that they already it's not an issue right like like the sky is blue like you know like it's just it is fact so i think for me that's my goal and somebody that understands why social justice matters i think that we must unite i think people must help each other with their movements it shouldn't be just blacks fighting for black lives it shouldn't be armenians fighting fighting for armenians and gays and lesbians fighting for gays and lesbians it's just not gonna work until everybody's on the same page until we're all together, it's not going to work out. So, you know, again, thank you for your inspiration, for your time, for your dedication, for your energy. I mean, just everything, right? And hopefully this isn't the last time we speak and hopefully we can, you know, continue to communicate and, um, you know, collaborate and, you know, and, and build on this relationship. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciated this conversation. This was um, quite good. <laughs> I really enjoyed mm -hmm. hearing your, a little bit of your story and, you know, your background as being Armenian and, I, I have some good Armenian friends going up as well. Uh, and so it's it's kind of, it's yeah, it's incredible to think about things through, you know, multitude of, of lenses and understanding that there's a lot more for us to do. And this is ultimately about human rights and dignity um, for us. So thanks for having me and absolutely hope to be talking with you all again, you know, soon. Awesome. Thanks, thank Opal. you, Opal.